Well, some of you got a surprise this morning when you got here for worship. Somebody was seated in the same area where you sit. Notice I didn't say they were seated in your seat. It's a blessing to be together. We don't get many opportunities like this, especially at, uh, or except at, at holidays. I'm so thankful that uh, John and Tyler uh, a few weeks back suggested that we do this together. And what a great time of worship we've had already. And how about being able to see three people declare their faith in Christ and follow him in believer's baptism this morning. If you were stirred during that time, if the Lord spoke to you during that time, let me assure you that any of our pastors would love to visit with you to help you be certain uh, that you have settled your relationship with Christ and your baptism as well. Let me ask you to turn this morning to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. It's about a third of the way into the Old Testament. Uh, some of you keep notes in the margins of your Bible, just so you know I'm not forgetful. I know we studied this book in September of 2019. We're not going to go back through the entire book. I just want to spend the first couple of weeks of our time together to cover some truth that we need to be reminded of as a unified body. And we, and we are a unified body. Um, our theme during these four weeks is simply together, the fact that we're unified around the gospel. We, we have two different worship services here at Geyer Springs, but honestly, that's nothing unusual. 30 years ago, when I came to Geyer Springs, we had three services at two locations. We've had two services many, many times in our history. Currently, we have two services. They meet at the same time, just in different venues and with different atmospheres. But the thing is, it doesn't matter which service you attend. It doesn't matter. Some of you hop back and forth between services. It doesn't matter because we're one church. We do life together. We, we serve together. We uh, care for one another. And these next few weeks, this week and three more, we're just going to be blessed with a special opportunity of being together in worship on Sunday morning. Now, before we dive in to the text of Nehemiah chapter 1, let me give you a little bit of background in case you have forgotten some of this. God uh, had promised Israel. Israel were his chosen people, his chosen nation. He had promised Israel, covenanted with them, and made them a promise that as long as they were faithful in their obedience to him, they would be blessed. As long as they followed him and obeyed him as his covenant people, they'd be blessed. And they were going to live in great blessing. Conversely, if they chose to disobey or to rebel against him, judgment would come. Now that judgment, and you can watch this happen all through the Old Testament, it's a cycle that they're continually going through. That judgment came at the hands of an enemy nation who would conquer and sometimes carry them off uh, from their land into captivity. Now let, let me pause here a minute, and I'll get back to Israel in just a second and say this, that judging nations, not just Israel, but judging nations is something that God does and has every right to do as a sovereign Lord. It's something he has done in the past and it's something that he has continued to do even in modern times. You can look through history and find many, many nations that have been brought to ruin. And you could, you could list, as you study those nations, you could list all kinds of issues or all kinds of forces that led to the ruin, but ultimately that ruin was the sovereign work of God. He is the one who judges and he's the one who brings nations down. And with that, I want to add this. One sign, one very clear sign of judgment, one very clear sign that God has taken his hand of blessing off a nation is an apostate church, a church that has fallen. An apostate church is a church that, that compromises the truth, a church that won't speak to the biblical issues of the day with clarity and conviction. And that church, you will often find, is a powerless church. 
you can go to a church like that and hear happy sermons that make you uh, feel good when you leave there. Typically, those sermons are very careful not to offend anybody because we don't want to decrease attendance or possibly lose money. But those churches, when you see churches like that in a society, in a culture, you can rest assured that God's hand of blessing is being removed. And I would just say to us this morning, considering the fact that God still judges nations, we need to be alert. We need to understand the course that our nation is on and and the outcome, and we need to pray, and we need to sound the alarm, and we need to, to recognize, while it's not a popular position in our culture, we need to be a people who speak uncompromising truth, no matter how unpopular that is. That's who God has called us to be. The church is supposed to speak up and to speak out in a godless culture, but far too often the church is is compromising with society by being silent. All right, so back, back to Israel and God's judgment. They had been judged. They had been carried off into captivity. The northern kingdom um, had been conquered by Assyria, the southern kingdom, Judah, by Babylon. Nehemiah, who wrote the book, you, you can see it in, in his first-person language here, Nehemiah was a descendant of those carried off into Babylon. He was not there at the time the judgment occurred, but he was actually born of Jewish parents in Persia, which conquered Babylon. So by the time of the events recorded here uh, in Nehemiah, there were about 50,000 Jews who'd been allowed to return to the land. But they're very discouraged. They're, They're back in the land, but the devastation of their country and specifically of the capital, Jerusalem, has them very discouraged. So let's pick up now with that background, the story here in Nehemiah chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And if you're wondering who this man is, Nehemiah then says, now I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah records it's some men had recently come from Jerusalem. One of those men was his brother, Hanani. Nehemiah asked them about the welfare of the Jews 
who'd returned to Jerusalem. And you see the report here in verse 3 that the walls of Jerusalem were, were rubble. They were broken down. They'd been reduced to ruins. The gates were burned with fire. And he says, so the people were in great trouble and shame. They were in trouble because you could not live in a city that was not fortified. With the walls broken down and the gates burned, they had no defenses. Anyone could come in and plunder the city. Anyone could harm the people or even, even kill the people who were living in the city. But he says not only were they in trouble, they were also in shame. Why was that? Because Jerusalem had once been a highly esteemed city, partly because of the great walls and the beautiful gates surrounding and fortifying it. And now those who are there are ashamed to be living in this city. It was an embarrassment to them. So Nehemiah hears this report, and, and verse 4, we're going to keep coming back to verse 4. Verse 4 is the key to the book. Nehemiah's response, if you remember the story, Nehemiah's response uh, to, this, to this dismal report explains his actions through the rest of the account, why he did what he did. Look at verse 4. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, hearing the condition of his people, now they were his people, even though he had not lived among these particular people, unless they were in Babylon where he was, he was not there when the devastation occurred, they were his people. And hearing what his people were going through caused him to be broken. It broke his heart and it, and, and it broke his spirit. You could say that Nehemiah was broken over brokenness. And when I think about Nehemiah's brokenness, I realize that I, for one, and I think most of us today really have a problem comprehending the brokenness around us. We don't see it. Now, Nehemiah didn't see it with his physical eyes. He only heard the report, but we don't see it even though we live all around it. We, we've overlooked the brokenness for so long that it just doesn't capture our attention. We live in a me and my culture, and in that me and my culture, we rarely focus on others because we're too busy with our own life and, and our own interest. You know, Nehemiah had a great position as cupbearer to the king. He was a trusted advisor. He had every need met. He lived in the king's palace. He had food from the king's table. And yet, when the men came from Jerusalem, he inquired about those in Jerusalem. That was of no concern to him. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't planning to go back to Jerusalem. And his inquiring of these men was not polite conversation with his brother. He was genuinely interested in the condition of those living in that broken place. And because that was on his heart, God is going to move him to involvement, move him to do something. The name Nehemiah means God has comforted or, or the Lord is comfort. You see, God saw in Nehemiah a heart that was willing to be burdened, a heart that was willing to be moved to the point of sacrifice. Nehemiah is going to have to make great sacrifice in order to help those that are back in the homeland. And God sees in him a willingness to do that. And God is able to burden Nehemiah and then use him to bring comfort because of brokenness. I don't have to tell you this, but all around us today, in our day and in our culture, is a lot of brokenness. It's outwardly evident. You see it in poverty. You see it in addiction. You see it in other moral issues. You see it in, in, in families breaking up. We could spend a lot of time talking about all those issues, but ultimately the brokenness around us is a result of spiritual brokenness. People live in brokenness because of sin. And what do broken people need? They need a relationship with the Lord. It doesn't mean all the circumstances of their life will change. 
that in a relationship with the Lord, he will help them live and help them deal with the brokenness. You know, Nehemiah's brokenness is a reflection of the brokenness of Christ. Twice in Scripture we see that Jesus had such a great burden for people that it caused him to weep. In John chapter 11 and verse 35, and you know the story, Lazarus has died. Jesus has delayed his return. Lazarus was sick. He delayed his return. Lazarus has died. Jesus gets there, and, and even Mary and Martha are so distraught that he didn't come sooner. And they go to the tomb, and it says when they arrived at the tomb, you read these words, Jesus wept. Well, why was Jesus weeping? He wasn't weeping over Lazarus. He was about to raise Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. He wasn't even weeping about the distress of the two sisters because he knew what was about to happen. If you take an in-depth look at the word wept, unlike the English language, in, in the Greek, the meaning of the word wept has some different nuances or facets to it, and one of those is a sense of anger or being stirred. Jesus wept because he was stirred. He, he wasn't angry with the people. He was angry because of Satan and sin and, and death and the whole destructive process that sin sets in place. Over in Luke 19, during the triumphal entry, as Jesus approaches the city, we read, the city of Jerusalem, we read that he wept over it. Why did he weep? He wept for the people because they couldn't see and understand. He says to them, if you knew this day, what would bring you peace? He wept because he knew destruction was coming. He knew that those walls would be broken down and not one stone would be left on another. And it wasn't the physical devastation. It was that it was symbolic of the spiritual devastation that was coming on that land because they rejected the Messiah. You know, there's nothing that probably more truly reflects the image of likeness and likeness of God than when we're broken. When we mourn and weep over brokenness, specifically spiritual brokenness, that reflects the image and the likeness of God. Again, Nehemiah was removed from the brokenness. He wasn't there in the middle of it. He wasn't experiencing it. And yet, we live right there in the midst of the brokenness, but we've been around it so long, we, we overlook it. And in the few moments when there might be a, a breakthrough and we see some evidence of brokenness, we often choose to turn aside. Much like the priest and the Levite looked away in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, if we're not careful, it becomes kind of our daily mode of operation to keep our blinders on and keep our focus on us and ourselves and not look at the brokenness. When you think about it, with a, with a lack of burden for the brokenness in our culture, we're no different than those two, we would call them despicable characters in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We, we don't know exactly why they passed by, but these men were both religious people, but clearly they were out of touch with the heart of God. Sometimes we want to rush by and look away and pretend that we don't see. You know why? Because information brings obligation. Unfortunately, the facts don't change just because we ignore them. And the reality is God has placed us here to be his hands and his feet. 
God has placed us here to do what Jesus would do when he saw brokenness, to do what God would call us to do. And so we see brokenness and we react to it and, and we throw money at the brokenness. We throw money at the needs. We throw money at ministries that we think will, will take care of that. Or we pray that God will help and God will bless the, those people. Or, or we even may send someone from, from us to minister to those in need. And all those things are important. They should be done, but that's not what God has ultimately called us to do. He's called every one of us individually to get involved and, and to rub shoulders with those in need and to be willing to get our hands dirty, to have our hearts broken. And in the story of Nehemiah, you see that's exactly what he is going to do. And so I, I would say to you this morning in thinking about the burden that Nehemiah had, maybe for us it's starting with expressing to the Lord a willingness to be broken, to have the weight and to have, have the pressure. That's something only God can do for us, is that we would feel that pressure so that God could do a work in us. See, see, most of us from personal experience have not lived in a great deal of brokenness. We've had moments in our life when there was brokenness, but we've not lived with consistent brokenness. We don't know what it's like to be vulnerable and, and exposed and an easy target for the enemy comes to spiritual brokenness, most of us have been followers of Christ long enough, we don't remember what it's like to be, to be lost, what it was like before coming to Christ, because that's the ultimate brokenness, being separated from the Father. Our role individually and as a body of Christ is expressed very well by Paul in the second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5. In verse 20, he says we're ambassadors for Christ. What does that mean? That means that we represent him in this world. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, leading up to verse 20, he tells us what the role of, uh, of the church, what the role of the individual is, is an ambassador for Christ. He says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. What is a reconciler? A reconciler is one who takes this party and this party who are not in agreement and brings them together. Our role in dealing with the spiritual brokenness is to bring people into right relation with God through Christ. That's, that's our vision. That's our focus. That's our goal as a church is that we're going to deal with spiritual brokenness by bringing the gospel to the broken and to the hurting. Let's go back to verse 4. Nehemiah is going to step up to the plate. If you read the story, you know that he does that. He's going to be part of the, the solution to this brokenness. He's going to go to work repairing the brokenness. But first, verse 4, he sat down and wept and mourned for days. Now, it's customary for the Jews to sit down in their mourning, but understand that mourning is more than, than a little bit of sadness. Mourning typically spoke of, of some great loss, like, like the death of a loved one. He sat down and, war, and wept and mourned for days. He fasted, he prayed. In fact, it says his praying was continual day and night. For the Jews, fasting was only required on the Day of Atonement. Any other time that they were fasting, it was a sign of, of being distraught, of, of great distress. Nehemiah prayed. That's where it all begins. That, that's where God starts to work. Vision for ministry begins in prayer. It can't be our vision. It can't be our plans. It can't be our purposes. It has to come from the Lord. God places a burden on Nehemiah. The, the, the situation of the people comes to his attention. Nehemiah realizes he must do something. And step one is he fasted and prayed and called out to the God of heaven. 
You see, when Nehemiah was burdened, when he was broken, he, he didn't have a plan or he didn't have a course of action to deal with that. And so he fasted and prayed. And if you follow the story, you know that God gave him a vision. God gave him a, a plan to repair the brokenness and to restore the people. You may remember back in uh, 2020, we began asking God, what is next in the ministry the, the, here at Geyer Springs, the work that he has for us as a church? And there were several things that came out of that vision team, but, but probably the main thing, the, the driving point of that focus was, we knew we had to make a stronger effort to get the gospel outside these walls. We knew there were people, while we were still reaching and are still reaching people here, we knew there were people that won't come here. They're not coming to us. We knew we had to get out and, and take the gospel to them. And we had that vision, and we began to run pretty hard after that vision. Fortunately, during uh, COVID, things slowed down pretty dramatically. We, we had some downtime, and we began to realize we, we had missed some things in that vision. We had come up with a quick, easy answer for how to get the gospel outside these walls, but we began to realize it wasn't God's answer. It wasn't his vision. We, we couldn't just go down the street and build another church and, and replicate what we had here. We realized that vision was still fuzzy, and, and we had to learn to keep praying and to ask, is this you, God? Is this what you're telling us to do? We came to the realization that vision was going to be a much longer uh, process that is still in development. There's some steps that have been made, but it's still in development. And our, our plan of action for getting the gospel into the communities and the homes of people who will not come to us is, is a long-term plan and a long-term process. And over the last couple of years, as I have prayed along with other of our, of our leadership and as we sought the Lord, we realized that at the same time we're refining the vision and refining the plans, we have to continue praying and seeking and not assume that, that we have the answer. And in recent conversations, it also became very clear to us, we've got to call on the entire body to join us in this process. Now, I'm not saying you haven't. You have prayed. Anytime we've come to the body and, and said, um, we need you to pray this for leadership, or we need you to pray for clarity of vision, you, you have honored that request and you have done that. But we're at a point now where we really feel and we sense the need to press in and to struggle and, and wrestle in prayer, not just have a, a fleeting thought or pray one day this week, but to really wrestle in prayer, much like Jacob wrestled with that angel and said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And so in understanding that need, we are asking and we are calling the church to 40 days of fasting and prayer. And what, what does that mean? Well, let me say this first. Typically in Scripture, when you see people fasting, it was either for um, repentance and renewal or it was for guidance. And, and there are many things that we could pray for over the next 40 days, but I think I would say to you, if you had to just hang it on two things, it would be those two things. We're asking, we're praying, we're fasting, asking God to bring renewal to our church to make sure that we've all repented of sin, to make sure that we all are choosing to walk with God, to make Christ Lord of life, and then for guidance. That God will continue to show us what we're to do as we move ahead in this process. 
As you leave this morning, you're gonna receive a booklet that looks like this. And in the first few pages of this booklet are some general um, instructions or direction on fasting, some things for you to read and, and think through. And, and, and let me mention this, many of you over the last few years, if you've been here with us, you've participated in a Daniel fast. We've done that a couple of times. This is not like that. Uh, the Daniel fast, there were certain foods you would eat, certain foods you would give up. Um, this is much simpler. It's just a fast. Now, what does that mean? Well, I would say to you, and you need to read um, those first few pages of instruction, but I would say to you very simply, I would ask you if we're gonna really seek the Lord, part of fasting is making a sacrifice and using whatever we fast to focus our attention on the Lord, to say to him, Lord, I'm, I'm dependent on you. I need you for everything. And so what I would suggest is that you pick out one thing, and it may or may not be food, one thing you can fast from every day so daily you're reminded of the importance of seeking the Lord. It may be your radio in your car, maybe your Coke and Dr. Pepper. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to give up your coffee. I've been around some of you when you don't have coffee. That would not be a good witness. But something that, that you have, you partake of every day that you'd be willing to give up because every day you'd be reminded of your need to seek the Lord. And here would be the second step, and, and maybe this is not for everybody, I don't know, you'll have to pray about that. The second step would be literally to fast from food, not for 40 days. You might fast from one meal a day or two a week. You might fast from, from all three meals a day a week. But some significant point of sacrifice, and during that time of fasting, you would use that time to focus on the Lord, not only for yourself, your own personal revival and renewal, but also for God's guidance on our church body. So you'll receive this booklet as you leave. You can also go to the website, gsfbc.org slash 40 days. The same information is there. In addition to a few pages of direction, there are 40 days of devotion. That way we're all reading the same thing and pursuing God together. The 40 days will start the 12th, that's Tuesday of this, next, this week, and go through August the 20th. Now, as you're in this process, as you're, as you're fasting, and as you're praying, we want to hear from you. And when you go to the website, uh, slash 40 days, and scroll down, you'll see a link that says we want to hear from you. As God is speaking to you and God is showing you things, we'd like to hear about that. You know, the vision is going to come uh, from the Lord, and obviously in a, in a body this size, there could be a lot of different vision, but we do think God, as he continues to give us vision, is going to speak through the body into that vision. So we want to hear from you. Now, if you're, not, if you're not web savvy, you don't have a computer, don't have internet, just email off your phone or, or whatever tool that you have, or jot a letter and drop it in the mail, whatever works for you. But we want to hear from you. We want to know um, what God is doing in, in the life of our body. You know, God is, is sovereign. How he moves and, and how he works and whom he uses is totally up to him. We, we can't manipulate him. He's sovereign when he chooses to move and work. But I want to tell you, as I thought back this week over recent days in our body, I've seen some really encouraging signs. One is the fact that we've had several adults baptized in recent days. People who grew up in the church, but then recognize that they hadn't surrendered completely to the Lordship of Christ.
God's moving. He's doing something. I've also thought about over the spring semester, we had two groups of about 12 to 15, mostly young adults in each group, intensely digging into the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells how God advanced the church, how the church grew in that New Testament time. And they've been intensely digging in. The group that I was in, I was amazed to come in each week and look all around the tables in that room and see very detailed notes. Digging in and asking God, what is it we need to know and understand about, about the church and how the church is able to impact the world and the culture and how we're able to grow the gospel message and advance the kingdom. And out of those two groups, I've already seen some couples, and not only out of those groups, but other places in our church, I'm seeing couples who are getting kind of restless. They're anxious. They're ready for God to, to call them out. I discovered back in the spring semester that there's a group that's been going out to our Raymar property on Saturdays and praying, praying over that whole area. I discovered there's a Sunday school class that was taking their Sunday school time, not every week, but at certain times they were taking their Sunday school hour and going out there and prayer walking in that neighborhood. You know what I told them? I said, hey, if you're taking your Sunday school hour to go prayer walk that neighborhood, I want you to take the worship hour too. Get out there. They've been doing that consistently. I thought about something that happened in our church just this last Thursday. One of the mission trips our students were on last week was to New Orleans. And one of the things they did on that mission trip is they would go into a laundromat and they would pay for people's laundry and then after they had paid for their laundry, they would just engage them in conversation. Looking for opportunities to have a gospel conversation. You know, we often ask, well, we go do that on, on missions, what about when we're home? Let me tell you what about when we're home. I won't, I won't call you up here, but I'm going to say your name, Logan Lanier, young man who just finished ninth grade this past Thursday. Students were going to gather at U.S. Pizza for lunch, and he sent a text out Thursday morning to the group. Hey, before we go to lunch, I'm thinking about going to a laundromat, engaging some people. And somebody shot me a screen copy of that group text, and one after another, and, and he said, if none of you want to go, that's fine. One after another said, I'll go. I will. I'm in. I'm down with that. I believe God is moving in this place among our people. I think we all want to see more of that. But it includes all of us. And here's the thing. If God should choose to move, you and I don't want to miss out. I don't know if God is going to reveal anything new over our 40 days of prayer and fasting. It doesn't matter. He may just affirm the direction we're already on. I don't know. But I think when our church comes together before the Lord, not that we don't pray anyway, but seriously committed to prayer and fasting that the Lord would work in us, and then he would work in our body. There's no telling what he might do.